Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. G'day mates, it's Bee Buster here. And before the episode begins, I would just like to let you know that Be Scared, which is produced along with Studio 71, features scary stories from around the globe on a weekly basis that aim to fuel your nightmares with a smile. And if you enjoy the podcast, it would be great if you could hit that subscribe button and drop a review. Thanks for listening, guys, and without further ado, let's begin. A few years ago, my friend Jane and I took a trip to Portland, Oregon. We're both from the south side of Chicago, and Jane was feeling pretty jaded with the city. She was convinced everything was better on the west coast, including the people. So, we flew out to Portland and rented a car, which we named Veronica. The day before we were supposed to fly back home, we took Veronica and drove up to Aberdeen, Washington, to see Kurt Cobain's childhood home. After that, we drove down the coast, sightseeing along the way. We visited Astoria, Oregon, to see the house from the Goonies, and ended the day at Cannon Beach to check out the Haystack Rock. All in all, it was a pretty nice day. Once it started to get dark, we decided to head back to our hotel, which was just under two hours away. I knew that I needed gas, so I told Jane that I would stop at the first gas station that I see. Cannon Beach is a small resort-type town, a lot of little shops and restaurants, but I didn't see any gas stations. Being from the city, I'm used to seeing two on every corner, so I wasn't really too worried. I expected to see one soon. I'm completely unfamiliar with the area though, so I just keep following the GPS's instructions while talking to Jane. Next thing I know, we're not in any type of town. We're on a dark winding road surrounded by trees. At this point, I'm getting a little worried, so I pull over to the side of the road to use the GPS to search for the nearest gas station. It tells me that there's one about a mile down the road. Awesome, I'll get some gas and we'll be set. So I'm driving and Veronica's telling us that we arrived at our destination. I pull into a completely dark and empty gas station. We're still surrounded by woods and darkness. As far as I can tell, there's nothing around for miles. 
According to Veronica, we have about 10 miles worth of gas and the nearest gas station is 30 miles away. Jane and I are sitting there trying to figure out what to do when another car pulls in. I keep going about my business and don't really pay attention to the other car. I just assume that they need gas too and out of the corner of my eye, I see someone gesturing to me. After some hesitation, I crack the window to see what they want. There's a middle-aged man and his wife in the car. He starts asking us all kinds of questions. Need to fill up, coming from the beach, driving back to Portland. I keep my answers polite but short. Then he tells us that he actually owns the gas station we're at but doesn't make enough money to keep it open that late. He tells us that he knows of a Chevron about three miles away and gives us directions for it. He gave us his number and says to give him a call in case we don't make it. He says, my name is Sam, the mechanic man. Let me know if you don't make it and I'll come and rescue you ladies. We thank him profusely and then we head out. Jane is going on and on about how nice that was and how that never would happen in Chicago. I agreed. That was very nice, if odd of him. Strange too that he happened to be driving past his gas station at the same time that we pulled in, but whatever I guess. I make a joke about him calling his buddy at the gas station saying, I'm sending two women your way. We make it to the place though and this kid, 18 or 19 years old, comes out to pump our gas. He asks us how we're doing and then says, Yeah, there's a lot of weirdos out here tonight. Jane and I look at each other and I let out a small laugh and say, Ha, huh, I told you. I turn back to the kid though and ask him what he means. He tells me this story about how his brother owes some drug dealer a ton of money and how he's hiding somewhere nearby. He's planning on kicking the crap out of him when he gets off his shift. I can tell Jane is getting uncomfortable with the building weirdness of the night, so I give the kid a good tip and wish him luck and start driving again. At one point during our conversation, Jane calls Sam the mechanic man and leaves him a voicemail. She tells him that we made it to the gas station and how much we appreciated his help. I thought the call was unnecessary, it was what it was. But a few minutes later, we're on the highway and about 10 minutes from our hotel, Jane's phone rings and it's Sam. Again, she thanks him profusely. He asks her where we're from and when we're flying home. He tells her that his name is Sam Glesty and he wrote a book called Wrongly Accused. He told us that we should read it when on our plane ride home. And this definitely piqued my interest. Hey Jane, you have to look up that book to see what it's about. She googles it and then she just goes limp and she looks like she's going to puke. What is it? Uh, I don't want to scare you but he was apparently accused of being the Green River Killer. And immediately she starts freaking out because he has a number now. Back at the hotel we do some more digging and apparently a victim of the Green River serial killer picks Sam out of a lineup. However, the real serial killer was caught and convicted based on DNA evidence. But around the same time in the 70s, Sam was convicted and served time for abducting and assaulting a young woman in the area that we were in. Well, the book he wrote was about all of that. We ended up stuck in Portland for two more days due to a snowstorm in Chicago. It was a weird, tension-filled two days. Considering the circumstances and the weirdness of that night, Things definitely could have gone horribly wrong. 
And boy, am I glad that all I got out of that night was a story. In New Zealand, we have a lot of walks, and sometimes I like to just drive somewhere and go for a hike into the bush. Normally, I just walk to a point and turn back, but tonight, I decided to walk the entire track. This specific track goes from a visitor center at the top of the hill, then down a hill is the track which takes you past a large old abandoned railway that was once used to show off glowworms and now is just a rusting wreck. I decided to walk down the track though and it was around 4.30 and it was starting to get a bit dark. So I thought that I would explore a bit and then walk back to my car. About 200 meters from the main station there's an old tunnel used by the train as well. This tunnel has been abandoned for coming up on three years now. So off I go to the tunnel with my little lantern. This tunnel would not have been more than 500 meters long I'd say. While I was walking, over the sound of my wet slapping footsteps, I swear that I could hear someone following me, breathing on me. I felt the hairs on my neck stand up and I stop in my tracks and swing around with my lantern. But there's nothing, just a small ball of light from the tunnel opening. So I start walking again and the feeling returns. Then over my own breath and slapping of my footsteps, I heard something. No, someone, a man in a deep voice, I heard in a dangerous whisper say, get out. And well, you don't need to tell me twice. I felt my large frame running through this small tunnel designed for a tiny train and I hear the footsteps behind me. The light of the mouth of the tunnel is getting larger and larger. I feel the security of the daylight sort of wash over me, twist. I tripped over and fell down on my stomach while still in the tunnel. And I felt this presence near me that I tried to get up but my shoulder is killing me and my legs have decided that they don't want to work anymore. And whatever it was, it didn't want me there and didn't want anyone there. I got covered in mud all down my front. Into the safety of the daylight though, walking up the railway looking like some awful extra on The Walking Dead. I reached the small station and managed to sit myself down on the long defunct station. Sitting there, I was trying to stretch out my arm so it wouldn't hurt anymore, then stretching my legs, I looked up and to my left, standing on the platform as of waiting for a train, was a guy, dressed in brown overalls and a white shirt, looking dirty and disheveled. I looked back down at my foot and turned back to look at this guy again and to my utter shock, he just wasn't there anymore. I promise you that I'm a pretty big frame guy and I have never run so fast in my entire life, up the hill as well, through the thicket of the forest and back to the safety of the car park. And now I'm sitting in the car trying to process what the hell just happened. And in case anyone was wondering too, yes, I'm able to take photos of this place as it's not barred to access, but I'm only going back if I'm prompted. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. 
This happened about two years ago while I was in university working on my degree in biology. I had signed up for a trip to gather samples for an experiment some students in the ecology department were going to run. It required the collection of samples from several sites, so they recruited biology, ecology, the forestry majors to help them complete the sampling in a shorter period. The area my group was to take samples from was a few hours from my uni in the Pacific Northwest. There are nine of us in my group, eight students and a supervising professor. We got to the campsite in the late evening and set up our tents. One of the other students had brought a big container of split pea soup from home and was sharing it with the others on the trip. I didn't really care for split pea soup, so I just declined the offer. Everyone had some except for me, one of the students, and the professor. Come the next morning, the five students who had eaten the soup weren't in the best of shape. They were in the grips of some gnarly food poisoning and were in no shape to hike for eight or nine hours to collect the samples that we needed. The professor who was supervising us had originally come with some rules such as people travel in groups of at least two and we had to return to camp by nightfall. But now, those rules were tossed out to make sure that we kept our timetable and collected all the required samples. But we were just told to do our best to complete the work assigned as long as you can do it safely. That morning, I set out for a long day of hiking. After a mile or so, I ran into the stream that I was supposed to follow. I needed to travel about four miles upstream, stopping every quarter mile to collect samples of the water in the soil. This meant that I had to hustle to get back before dark. Halfway through the day though, I realized that that was not going to happen. About two miles into my hike, I stopped for lunch sitting on a log overlooking the stream. The scene was really peaceful, until I smelled the cigarettes. It wasn't a smell of a cigarette being smoked, more the musty smell of a heavy smoker's car where cigarette butts had been left to ferment for weeks on end. I looked around, but I couldn't see anyone. I just assumed that the wind had blown the scent of some hunter or hiker over to me. But minutes later, the smell hadn't faded. The vegetation in the area wasn't that thick, but there were still a lot of places for someone to duck behind a tree or bush. I was unnerved, I must admit, that someone was apparently staying close enough to me for me to smell them for this long and without so much as a word. I quickly packed up the trash from my lunch and I continued up the stream. The musty cigarette smell went away for the next few hours. It wasn't until I arrived at my last sample location late into dusk that I smelled it again. The woods were getting really dim by this point. Looking back on it too, it was a really stupid idea to stay out so late, as just hiking back to camp in the dark would be pretty dangerous, even without a cigarette-smoking stalker. Having just put the collection tubes in my bag, I shined my flashlight around the darkening woods, looking for whoever was giving off the smell. I didn't see anything that caught my attention. It would actually be more correct to say that I saw too many things in the dim light that might have been a head sticking out from behind a tree or someone crouched low in the foliage to actually know what was going on. I didn't like the idea of being in the dark woods with a stranger who, for the second time, was lurking near me without revealing themselves. So, I began to double time it back down the stream. I made much better time on my way back, even though it was dark because I didn't have to stop to take any samples. But even so, I didn't get back to camp until a bit before 10. I was the last one to get back and everyone but the professor was already asleep. 
I didn't mention the cigarette smell to the professor because, well, he seemed tired as it was and he headed to his bed in the RV soon after I got back. I headed to my tent soon after as well. At some point in the night though, I woke up needing to pee. I decided to head into the woods to do my business, as I knew some of the other students were still feeling ill and needed the RV toilet for more urgent matters than just having to take a leak. I walked about a hundred feet into the woods, found a tree and did what I needed to do. As I turned to go back to the camp, something caught my eye though. Somewhere off into the woods, there was a tiny red glow. I was confused as to what it was until it flared momentarily and I realized that it was the cherry of a cigarette. I stood there for a while, watching the red ember glow fade, then move slightly closer to the ground as whoever was smoking would take it out of their mouth. Not being able to see the person though, I assumed that they were watching the camp. I didn't know if they had seen me make my way into the woods or not, as the fire had been doused and the moon was only half full, so there wasn't very much light. I made my way slowly back to the camp, as quietly as I could though, and entered the RV to wake up the professor. I told him about the person smoking in the woods and about the smell of the cigarettes earlier that day. However, when we got outside of the RV, the ember from the cigarettes was gone. My professor woke up the other student who hadn't come down with food poisoning and we took turns watching over the camp. I didn't see or smell anything else when I was on guard duty and went to sleep when the professor woke up for his turn. In the morning, the professor, the other student and I, went to where I guess the smoker had been standing that night before and, sure enough, we found about ten cigarette butts on the ground next to a tree. And the tree itself looked like someone had been twisting and stabbing a knife or other sharp object into it as the bark and the outer layers of the wood had been damaged and chipped away. The professor decided that the group should head back that day, even though we hadn't collected all the samples that we were assigned to be on the safe side. We packed up camp and drove down the thin dirt trail without incident. The second that we got onto the paved highway though, a white panelled van pulled out of the clearing just off the shoulder and began to follow us. This van stayed behind us all the way back, pulling off the highway when we did, taking the same surface streets that we did and only stopped following us when we turned onto the road leading to our university campus. Everyone was freaked out by this, but it was around 9 at night on the weekend, so the security office on campus was closed. We decided to unload the RV and call it a night, as the van hadn't followed us onto the campus. I offered to help the professor catalog and store the collection tubes from our trip, so it was another couple of hours before I left the biological sciences building and started heading toward the dorm building that I lived in. I stepped out into the cool night air and began walking, my professor having left the building in the other direction to get to his car and drive home. It was a couple of dozen feet outside of the building, which was now locked, when I was hit with the musty smell of old cigarettes again. I looked around, and about 25 yards away in the darkness, off of the footpath, I saw the cherry of a cigarette smoldering away. I was pretty scared at this point but hoped that it was only a student or some faculty staying late having a smoke. I couldn't completely convince myself of this though, as the musty cigarette smell was definitely the same as what I smelled in the woods the previous night. I started down the footpath and soon passed whoever was smoking. A hundred feet or so later, I looked over my shoulder and saw the cigarette cherry bobbing in the darkness. 
words. The smoker was following me. This creeped me out a bit more, but I still held it together until I rounded a small stand of trees and saw a white paneled van parked alone in a parking lot. I took off at a sprint toward my dorm building. I looked over my shoulder a few steps into my run and I saw the cherry of the cigarette fall to the ground and a dark shape beginning to move after me. I didn't look back again, but I could definitely hear someone running in the grass off to the footpath. I got to the entrance to my dorm building and frantically waved my keycard in front of the card reader that controlled the door lock. As soon as I hear the soft beep, I open the door, jump through the doorway, and shut the door quickly. I stopped and peered through the glass door, and I saw the dark shape stop just before the lit pathway. I just watched for a minute or two, and then I saw the spark of a lighter. The light is just barely bright enough to illuminate a shaggy beard and a brim of a baseball cap before it disappears and was replaced with the red glow of a cigarette. I turned and headed up the stairs to my dorm room. By the time that I get to my window, overlooking the same yard that I'd just run through, there was no trace of a dark figure or a cigarette cherry. So I work in the service industry, beauty and body, etc. A few years ago, there was a very strange and very creepy client that we had who came in for a series of treatments, which meant me and three other girls would see him several times a week. He would come for the latest appointment possible, bring weird books about lucid dreaming, and strip down to absolutely nothing but a towel over his junk, even though his treatment did not require for him to be nude. We all agreed that he was a complete weirdo, and after a few weeks, we were free from his crazy ass. Fast forward to this past winter, and he calls in out of the blue, says that he wants to start these treatments again. I begged my boss not to have him come in, but there wasn't really a reason to not have him. Plus, he's in his early 20s, rich kid who will spend all of his mum's money. As he was speaking to me over the phone, he remembered everything about me and began apologizing for being rude to me in the past, which he wasn't, just a freak, and said that he had a huge crush on me, blah blah blah. The first few treatments, my co-worker would be with me, but after a few weeks, she couldn't work that late anymore, so I was alone. He constantly tried to keep me in the room with him, first asking questions about the treatment, but then trying to pry into my personal life. He kept complimenting my body and looks, to which I would politely say that that wasn't appropriate and he would apologize. On more than one occasion, he was definitely high out of his mind and not weed and would say the weirdest things. This all doesn't sound too bad, but if you could picture what a serial killer would behave like from movies and TV, that was this guy. I'm not even joking, he was the scariest person that I've met in my entire life. The day I finally had enough, though, was when he came in wearing a suit, and during the treatments, he complimented me over and over, and then began asking me how I felt about women being raped and murdered, and saying women were horrible and such. I became increasingly nervous, and he would laugh or try and contain his laughter while talking about rape and murder. I can't even remember what he said because I was so scared, and I just blanked everything out. After this treatment was done... I immediately called him a cab. He would usually ask me to do it, but I did way earlier than he would ever ask me, 
just before he left, he said, I find it adorable that you're so vulnerable, and stood there staring at me with honestly the coldest look in his eyes and a slight smirk. I literally almost bawled my eyes out right in front of him. I could feel my heart racing and I was sweating profusely. Before he left too, he said that he forgot something in the room and stood there waiting for me to go and get it for him. If I had gone into that room, he could have easily followed behind me and blocked the doorway. I could have easily been trapped in there after 8pm in the winter when it's very dark out. The streets around here are dead at this time and the other tenants in these buildings always leave around 5 or 6. He just stood there, staring at me and... I sat at my desk, literally clutching a pair of scissors away from his view, waiting for him to go in and get whatever it was that he forgot. He grabbed the item, then asked me to help clean up, to which I obviously said no, and locked the door as he was gone. I watched him get into his cab and then ran to my car, literally crying the hardest that I've ever cried in my adult life. He called for several days and tried to explain to my coworker that he thought that he scared me and wanted to apologize. I never spoke to him and told my boss what happened, to which she banned him from ever returning. I don't know if he would have actually attempted anything, but I think the fact that I called the cab earlier without him asking, he knew someone would have been outside, and who knows, maybe that's what deterred him. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. So my family has some land on a remote-ish mountain just outside of Eureka. I come down here a few times every year and haven't really experienced anything too out of the ordinary. But last night was, well, different to say the least. I didn't know this before, but apparently this area is pretty popular for UFO sightings. I still don't know if that's what this actually is, but I'm having a really hard time coming up with a logical explanation. So, we had a good fire going for a few hours, and after everyone else went to bed, it was just my dad, fiancé, and I left. We were all just shooting the breeze and enjoying the weather and cozy fire. Around 1am, we started talking about constellations, and so we had all leaned back and were just staring up at the sky. My fiancé pointed out a light that was noticeably brighter than all the other stars, and it was steadily moving too. I immediately figured that it must have just been a satellite, but then my dad chimed in with, Oh uh, no, I don't think that that is, but watch it for a second. My dad and I are hugely into aliens, and we both have had a fair amount of sightings in the past. I focused closer on the light and saw it wasn't just gliding across in a straight line. It was zigzagging back and forth as if it was moving east. The three of us were exclaiming about how weird it was when... It suddenly veered and arced towards the southern mountain. I'm thinking to myself, okay, is this really happening right now? And the light just stops. 
it just hovers above the mountain for at least five minutes. And then we're all saying that it's definitely not a satellite, with the occasional comment like, holy crap, this is wild. The light started to shift to the right again until it was behind a tree and we lost sight of it completely. We went back to the normal campfire shenanigans for a couple of minutes and my fiancé got up to get some drinks. And as soon as he got up, the entire sky just lit up in an almost painful bright white flash, like lightning on steroids. This was a crystal clear night. There wasn't a storm on the radar for miles and miles. We couldn't even see one little wispy cloud. It absolutely could not have been lightning. My dad and I were the only ones who saw it, as most people were asleep and the fiancé was inside. There wasn't a single sound when it happened and there was no boom or rumble or anything, but the entire mountain went dead silent for a few minutes afterwards. It was really eerie. It's like time around is just paused momentarily or something. My dad ended up feeling so uncomfortable and anxious about it too that he just eventually went to bed. The two of us stayed up for a while after that, but we didn't see any more weird lights or flashes. But I definitely felt a heavy sense of unease around us for the rest of the night. My boyfriend and I have been together for nine years now. I've always suffered from night terrors, but that's not something that you bring up on your first date. This was back when my boyfriend and I had been dating for a few months and they recently started sleeping together. So we were sleeping at his place. I woke up in the middle of the night and noticed that we were holding hands. I thought it was cute, but I noticed that his hand was really pale and thin. My boyfriend actually has hands a bit like an orc. My eyes got used to the darkness and I saw his hands were crossed on his stomach while I was holding a third pale hand. As I became aware of this, something that looked like a woman with long black hair hanging over her face sat up from behind my boyfriend's form, looked at me, and laid back down. I stroked a hand with my thumb as you do when holding hands with someone. I don't know why I did that. I just wrote it off as dream logic. This was in the beginning of our relationship, so I didn't tell him about it because I didn't want him to think that I was crazy. Years passed though, and we're now living together. He's very aware of my paranormal beliefs and night terrors. When out of nowhere, I came to remember this dream. I said to him, Hey, did I ever tell you about that night terror that I had at your house when we just recently got together? I saw someone who looked like Sadako in your bed when we slept. I almost got jelly. I joked, but he didn't laugh. He got very pale and said, Wait, did she try to hold your hand? I got taken aback by his reaction, and I told him that I did hold her hand and even remember stroking it with my thumb. My boyfriend then revealed to me that as a child... He'd have a reoccurring nightmare that a woman with long black hair and white hands tried to hold his hands, but he'd wake up in a panic before she ever got to him. He'd never told me this because he just wrote it off as a childhood nightmare. He'd never told me this because he just wrote it off as a childhood nightmare. But now, neither of us think that they're nightmares anymore. In my college days, now 20 years ago, me and some friends often took off for the North Georgia mountains on the weekend. When we wanted to smoke and drink and commune with nature, these mountains were perfect. 
On the weekend this unsettling event occurred, me, my friend Bill, and his German Shepherd Monty headed out towards Sky Valley. It was the beginning of fall semester at UGA, and not much was going on yet. We'd found an area where a dirt road led back a half mile, and, and then we would hike in another mile or so and set up camp near a creek. Excellent trails were nearby with fun places to explore, not to mention flat ground perfect for setting up camp. Bill and I arrived at our spot around 4pm and got a fire going. We were musicians, Bill a guitar player and me a percussionist. So we sparked up and we started jamming. Around 10, after jamming a while, we chatted about life and girls before tucking in for the night. It was a clear night and we just slept under the stars. It is important to know too that we never had any sign of other people in this area during our other trips. At about 2am in the morning... I was awoken by Monty growling. It was a deep guttural growl. Bill was still dead to the world and I sat up to look around and listen, thinking maybe an animal had come near our campsite. The fire was only embers at this point, so it was hard to see. But I just barely heard audible voices in the distance. Focusing on the area of the voices, I saw a faint red glow followed by another faint red glow to the left of the first. This was about a hundred yards away. My mind connected what I was seeing. Cigarette embers burning and they were getting closer. Bill, I whispered. Wake up. Bill roused from his sleep and I explained what was going on. At this point, Monty started barking as the strangers approached the camp. By the time we stood up, they were in the camp, completely unfazed by the now rabid 70-pound German Shepherd two incredibly unkept late 30s and early 40s deliverance looking mofos walked up on us. Bill told Monty to calm down and I will never forget the look of these guys. Skinny as hell about 5'8", shirts caked in grime, mangy beards and probably five teeth between the two men. Each had huge knives attached to their belt buckles. What are you boys doing way out here? Look like you're having a good time. We responded and told them that we'd been out there to camp and drink some beer. They asked if we had any weed and we gave them some. They looked around a bit and asked if we wanted to smoke with them. But we declined saying that we were headed out early. Throughout the conversation, anything Bill or I said, they looked at each other before responding. Finally, before they left, one of them said, You'll stay safe out here. You never know who you could run into, you know? followed by a laugh as they walked away. We packed up earlier than we expected and we left. The thing that sketches me out to this day though is the fact that we only woke up because the dog was with us. I am newly moved, 21 male, into my house and I'm still not 100% familiar with my own neighborhood yet. The way the neighborhood was built makes it a rectangular shape, laying down on its long side, with my house being at the top right-hand corner of it. Sorry if that's confusing, but it's the best way I can describe it. So, the other night, around 12.30am, I was at home alone when I decided to take a break from playing guitar and having a smoke before bed. So I grabbed a smoke and started out my front door, about three or so minutes into my cigarette, I noticed this faint noise of what sounds like an old creaky metal object that needs to get oiled. But the sound was of cadence which makes it repeat every two or three seconds. After this happened for about ten seconds, 
I notice that I can hear tires gripping the road as well. Then, out of nowhere, I see a man, who looks to be in his mid-40s, riding this horrible beaten down bike that emitted a very intense, ear-piercing, high-pitched squeak every time he pedaled. As I stood in my driveway and he passed me, he kept moving forward, but his head slowly rotated left and he locked eyes with me. I am not kidding when I say too that this guy looked identical to Hannibal Lecter from the movies, but that's not what made my heart drop. As I'm locking eyes with him and he's moving past my driveway, he suddenly gives me the scariest and most widest, scariest, jagged tooth smile that I had ever seen in my life and continues to lock eyes with me and this was no ordinary smile too. I'm talking a when the Grinch stole Christmas ear to ear smile. Within 15 seconds or more, he continues pedaling and is out of sight. I can now just faintly hear his bicycle gear squeaking. At this point, I'm wondering whether or not he's going around my rectangular block of a neighborhood and whether or not I can chief this sig fast enough to get inside before he comes around again. As I'm doing this, I begin to hear the metal creak noise, but also... I hear something different. I hear this dude laughing like a maniac, which, to be honest, made me nope the hell out of there. As I'm stumbling from my door handle because of the adrenaline rush, he begins to round the corner where my door is almost in view. At the exact moment where I would have become visible, I got my door open, ran in, and slammed it shut and locked it. No sooner does my door close do I hear the man from outside scream as loud as can be, where'd you go? And just begins laughing like a crazy man. I went into full out battle mode, ran around my house and turned all the lights off, battle crawled to my bedroom and waited. As I lay on my bed for the next 30 minutes, I would hear the squeaking of the bike for about 30 seconds every 3 to 4 minutes. About 30 to 45 minutes later, it finally stopped and the man was gone. I have actually quit smoking since then and haven't been outside that late, but every now and then, around 2.30 in the morning, I still hear the squeaking of the bicycle from outside my room window. I don't know who he is or what he wants, but this guy, he's creeping me out. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, 
which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So, I'm not sure I know where to start with this one, as it happened 10 years ago and... Trauma makes the memory fuzzy, but I'll try my best to be precise and accurate in my telling of this. For some context, I'm a short, almost five foot female, who is definitely on the fluffy side. Bob is incredibly tall, probably the tallest person you'd ever meet, with huge gouged ears and can, when angry, look quite intimidating, but has never hurt anyone ever. He's the kind of guy that nurses birds back to health, if you get my drift. So I grew up in a small town, big enough to have a Walmart at the time, but small enough that you knew everyone and everyone knew you. In high school, one of my best friends dated this guy that we'll call Adam. He was a grade higher than us and generally popular. At the time, I didn't think much about him, other than that he was my friend's boyfriend. He was likable to almost everyone, charismatic, seemingly intelligent... There were other things at the time in hindsight that I should have seen, but was blinded by youth and ignorance. Fast forward a little bit, I'm 17, graduated early and off to college. I'm a minor in a new town over two hours from home, knowing nobody and living in the college dorms. It was co-ed and a few people I knew from my hometown, but they were older than me since I was going to college early and didn't have a strong relationship with any of them. My first day, I come to the dorm and see Adam is the male RA for my floor. Yes, I think to myself, I'm so glad that I know someone here. We chat for a while and I unpack my stuff. My parents and I look around the campus and drop me off, giving lots of hugs and waving goodbye and all that good stuff. I'm excited and terrified to lead my new adventure of independence, but when I get back to my dorm... On my door is a piece of paper that reads something along the lines of, due to improper moral conduct, you have been expelled from college and should leave immediately, or something to that effect. I open the door and see all of my belongings are gone. I run downstairs and show the paper to the front desk in tears and they help me figure it out. Then lo and behold, Adam, the RA, had pulled a prank and moved all of my things, underwear and fiddly bits included, into his room. I was furious, when in retrospect I should have been terrified, but laughed it off and unpacked my stuff again. It was my first day, I was young, I didn't understand that I should have nipped it in the bud right then and there, but it's where this story really begins. So Adam didn't get into any trouble from that instance, but over the next year he would occasionally play pranks on me and other residents that were above the threshold for appropriate at the time I was beginning to think that it was just weird but nothing besides the first time was so overt that I couldn't write them off as actions of the young and dumb. Fast forward two years my boyfriend at the time future husband too who we'll call Bob and I have been living off campus in these super crowded apartments. There was at one time seven people in a three-bedroom apartment but we decided when our lease was up that we would move into a larger place and sublet. We found a nice apartment across town that had four bedrooms, two upstairs and two downstairs. There were two bathrooms and one upstairs and one downstairs that were in the middle between the two bedrooms. Each bathroom had a door leading into each bedroom and the downstairs bathroom had a third door leading into the living room. 
we signed the lease in our name only and got permission to sublease under our name. It meant, though, that we were personally responsible for any damage and the full rent amount as the lease was in our name. And here is where we made our first mistake. Adam and his then-wife had recently been kicked out of their apartment. Being the nice and generous people that we were, we offered to sublease to them month to month. They both had steady jobs and Pell grants, so I knew that they could afford the rent, and Adam was in ROTC and seemed to be on the straight and narrow for the most part. We also put feelers out to other friends and found another hometown guy to rent out one of the rooms, but he couldn't move in for 90 days, which at the time was fine. As we're moving into the new place, Adam and his wife offer to help, and we discover that a lot of our stuff went missing or was broken. We're pretty pissed, but there's nothing to be done about it, and didn't know for sure who did it. The second that all of our stuff is over to the new place, I've discovered Adam and his wife had filled the entire house with their stuff. Sofas, kitchen utensils, etc, etc. That's fine though, I don't mind sharing space, I think, and I just let it go. I worked during the day and went to school and slept during the night, Adam and his wife went to school early in the morning, slept during the day, and worked overnight shifts as security guards. I started noticing very expensive electronics come into the house though. I rarely saw Adam and his wife, but on occasion I would ask, hey, how much was that brand new projector? And Adam's response was covered by the worksite's insurance. It made me uncomfortable, but again, he was a prankster and maybe he was just kidding. I mean, his family was very wealthy. Maybe there were presents, right? About a month passes and things are starting to get weird though. Each room had a separate deadbolt to it, so you could keep your room locked with a key only you had. I had asked Adam and his wife not to get into my room, thinking back to the dorm days. And I came home a number of times during the day to find things moved around. I thought it was just my imagination at first, or perhaps Bob, but... He vehemently denied moving things around. I started to test a theory by telling Bob that I was going to place X on the nightstand, Y on the dresser, and Z on the windowsill and not touch them. I would come home and X, Y, and Z would be in completely different places. I thought that I was going crazy. My room was deadbolted, so I started to try and figure out what the hell was going on when I noticed that the handle to the bathroom door that faced the living room had been flipped around so it couldn't be locked from the inside. Weird, I thought to myself, but maybe it had always been that way. So being the handy person that I was, I grab my screwdriver and flip it back around. Problem solved. I leave a little note on the kitchen counter saying something along the lines of, hey man, I fixed the downstairs bathroom. I'm going to keep it locked for my privacy. Let's have a house meeting soon. Let me know when you're available and we'll talk about it. I wanted to ask him if he'd been getting into my room and then set some boundaries. The next day, the note was gone but no response. I left for my daily activities to come back and find my room had been thrashed. My small rodent pet had been taken outside onto the patio in its cage with the door open. Obviously, I'm livid. I checked my door, still deadbolted. I checked the bathroom door, still locked but find Adam had removed the door to the bathroom going into the empty downstairs bedroom, allowing him access to my room via the spare bedroom. And I mean, what the hell, right? 
I leave another note on the counter, this time explaining, look, we need to talk, whatever is going on is not cool. At this point in time, they were never home as I was. He had actually been fired from his night watch job, due to things going missing I assume, and gone full force into his ROTC training. I didn't know where both of them were most of the time. I was working 40 hours a week and taking 30 credits and doing undergraduate research, so I was rarely home. Bob was working two jobs too and having to scooter across town, and then would come and see me after school on campus, so he was also rarely home. We found out later that Adam had actually been kicked out of college due to his behavior too. Time passed though and there was still no contact. I knew that they were still living there though as stuff was moved around but I never saw either of them. I stayed in my room for much of that period of time as I thought that I was going crazy. My brain kept telling me that I'm being unreasonable, maybe there is a reason. But then one day... Bob and I come home, and the door to my bathroom that faces the living room was completely gone. Just gone. This meant that, to pee, you had to do it in the open with the whole kitchen and living room being able to see you, and all the stuff in my room was absolutely trashed again. My pets were outside again, my boyfriend's scooter was outside, clothes strewn about, stuff was missing, and that was the last straw. I leave a note explaining that this isn't cool and put the back door on. I received a note the next day saying that they removed the door because it's unfair we have to walk upstairs to use the bathroom if we're in the living room and you kept locking the door. But the door was not replaced. I called up the apartment complex and explained what was going on and asked if we could break the lease in the next month and transfer it to a studio apartment. They agreed and the plan was set. After talking to the apartment for a while, we found out that Adam and his wife had been trespassed from the property prior to moving in and failed to mention that to us. So again, I left a note on the kitchen counter, in not so nice of a tone this time, saying, Hey, the lease is in my name. You were here by my grace alone on a month-to-month -month sublet. I was trying to be cool, but this is too much. You've removed my ability to have privacy in my own bathroom and keep getting into my room. You have 30 days to find a new place to live. I'm ending your sublease due to invading my privacy on multiple occasions and destroying apartment property. I have tried to talk to you about this, but you have not responded. I feel that we're in an impasse, so please take this as your 30-day notice eviction. At this point in time, I'd also given my pets to a good home as I feared for their health due to the current situation. I made it a point for Bob and I to be away from the apartment for two days to give everyone time to calm down. I get home and the note is gone. Nothing in its place. I go to my room and Bob and I settle in. Tomorrow we start packing the non-essentials so we can move at the end of the month. 5.30 and I hear a knock on the door. Who is it? It's Adam. I go and unlock the door, thinking he's come to talk about the eviction notice and crack open the door just slightly. And there, right in my tiny little face, is a gun. I can see straight down the barrel to Adam's calm, expressionless face. I scream and slam the door closed, twisting the deadbolt shut just in time. Bob is awake now, and he's running to the bathroom door and making sure it's locked. Adam starts slamming his body against the door and screaming, I'm going to kill you. This goes on for maybe 15 minutes. I'm amazed that the door held up, to be honest. When suddenly, it just goes completely quiet. Too quiet. I listen to see if I can hear what's going on outside. 
and as soon as I can, I run across the room and grab my old faithful Nokia phone and call 911 and explain the situation. The operator states there's a patrol car already on its way. That's weird, I think. But Bob and I huddle in the closet and wait. A knock comes at the door a few minutes later. I try to get out, but the sheer force of Adam's rage against my door has bent the deadbolt and it's hard to open now. So Adam gets to the front door first. Him and his wife are talking to the officer by the time that I get out of my room. They're all well-dressed, calm-looking. I'm in my PJs and sweating, tears running down my face. Bob is also disheveled. They're explaining to the police how they came to talk to us about an unfair 30-day eviction notice when we freaked out and began threatening them with violence. I try to explain my side of the story. A second officer arrives and pulls them outside to talk. I can hear that he goes on to explain that as the honourable ROTC soldier or police officer, he was just a security guard, and his wife, who miraculously was now pregnant, he was frightened for their lives when I started to threaten violence and worried about the health of their baby. I realised in that moment too, so many life lessons. Be the first to call the police, make sure you know your optics, learn the signs of a psychopath, and most importantly, don't have roommates. I tried to explain the situation to the officer, told him about the gun, showed him the deadbolt, but again, being young and dumb and terrified, I didn't have any pictures of the mess that they'd made in my room, or the door that they had removed, or any of the other weird stuff. I told the officer about how they'd been trespassing off the property, how they weren't technically on the lease, how I suspected him of stealing from his work, etc, etc, but it all came down to a sleep-deprived, adrenaline-high ramble. Adam calmly handed a copy of his sublease and eviction notice to the officer, who proceeded to thank Adam for his service. I knew at this point that I was done for too. The police informed Bob and I that we had to allow Adam and his wife the full 30 days, that we were not to talk to them or interact with them in any way during that 30 days, or Adam could call back and Bob and I would be arrested for continuing harassment. For the rest of the month, Bob and I stayed in our room, only beelining for the door to go to work and come back. Every time we tried to leave to go into the kitchen or living room, there would be Adam telling us to go back in our room or he called the cops. If we had had any money whatsoever, I definitely would have rented a hotel room, but with the fees for breaking the lease, plus college, we were pretty much broke. For 30 days, he and his wife held us in proverbial hostage in our rooms. Finally, the night before the last day, I put out a note asking him to leave his keys so I can return them to the office. And guess what? He calls the police. This time... I make sure I control the optics though. I'm dressed in the most innocent way possible and try to explain how for 30 days I've been prevented from leaving my room, terrified of this man with a gun, and how I didn't want to break what the officer had asked of me last time, no contact, by leaving the note. I also had a letter now from the apartment complex stating that they were trespassed. The officer takes his keys and gives them to me. They finally move out and as I'm doing my final walkthrough, I find that he has overflowed the upstairs bathroom with water and put a hairdryer in the sink and rigged it to turn on when I opened the door. Jokes on them though as there was a GRE switch that they plugged into it and countless toys, if you catch my drift, strewn throughout the place. Bob and I moved into our studio but 
For years afterwards, we would find ourselves somewhere and notice Adam behind us, following us wherever we went. The gaslighting had been so bad that it took a long time to realize that we weren't actually crazy. I had nightmares of that month of hiding, of him shoving the gun in my face, of being somewhere and him just turning up. The sheer sight of him made me so nauseous and I would vomit on more than one occasion. After college, Bob and I moved back home though. We were living our lives and the event was far behind us. When one day I buy a newspaper to see the front page reads, local hometown hero Adam to have parade in his honour and an account of how he had injured his leg while serving. And yep, there was indeed a parade. I did some research though and found out that he had joined up after college and only served two years and never even made it to overseas before he blew up his own leg while messing around. And so I guess you could say that there is some karma in the world. And to this day in my hometown, he's still considered an honoured, disabled veteran. So before I begin the story, I feel it's important that I give out a few details first. So me and my three close friends like to drive around and walk around spooky places as we generally get bored with our university nightlife fast and need something to sort of excite us. All of us are also big believers in the supernatural and three out of four of us have experienced some sort of paranormal experience. All of us are from Malaysia and we Malaysians tend to believe in a lot of supernatural stuff as it's woven tight into our history and culture. Now, Malaysia had a terrible incident back in 98 or 99, don't really remember, where two apartment buildings collapsed due to uneven lands. Majority of the tenants of those two apartments died and what's worse is that a number of them didn't die when the building crashed but died due to a lack of oxygen. You can actually Google it too, the building is Highland Tower. So we decided to go to the area nearby there as the site where the tragedy happened is closed, though there are no guards on patrol. Just outside the gates is a small neighbourhood and boy is that neighbourhood creepy. You can actually see the area that is the rich area and yet a good amount of the houses were empty. But what's stranger though was the fact that the whole neighbourhood was absolutely quiet. It's a very uncommon thing in Malaysia as we're pretty loud here and it felt as if everyone just decided to up and leave that area. So as we walked around, a couple of strange things happened. First, the dogs in the neighborhood started barking at plain air. We Malaysians believe that when dogs start to do that sort of stuff, it means that they are seeing something that we aren't able to see. So we decided to avoid any area which the dogs are barking at. It's important to note that we made a few rules before doing all of this. Again, a Malaysian thing, I suppose, but... One, don't call out real names, use nicknames. This is so that any wandering spirits won't be able to attach itself to you. Two, don't look back if you feel a presence. This is often a big mistake, as even if you look behind to find nothing, you've actually just shown the spirits around you that you've noticed them. And three, don't make loud remarks about strange things. We believe that if you see, hear, or smell anything strange, it's best to just keep it to yourself. If you need to tell someone, then just use hand signatures or make some excuse to sort of hint at them. This is similar to the second one, as any remarks could easily attract unwanted attention. So, as we walked throughout the neighborhood, we heard footsteps behind us. Remembering the rules, none of us looked back though. 
And you see, the footsteps were odd as they just sort of randomly appeared out of nowhere. The footsteps also started to get faster, so one of our group mates, the expert as we call him, led us to the exit using a shortcut as it was getting too uncomfortable. And here is where things went down. See, the expert is one of those guys who can see things or at least feel it to a certain extent. Now, because we're big believers, we don't actually question him. We just follow as we all want to get through this as clean as possible. The expert is also my best friend and he often brings me to the side to whisper to me if anything is really wrong and close to being dangerous. The place where we had parked our car was directly beneath this huge tree, so my best mate called me to the side and whispered to me, Dude, don't panic, but when you get to the car, keep quiet and make sure the others keep quiet too until we reach a place with more people. And why? Well, there's a woman on the tree above your car and she's been looking at us since just now. Following his advice, I went on and started the car like usual while making some small jokes, trying to take everyone else's attention away as I reversed the car. Both my mate and me noticed in the reverse camera that there was a clear shadow of a woman sitting down on top of the car. Again, not wanting to scare everyone else and to antagonize it further, we just kept quiet. We went to a nearby restaurant and sit down for a while. The woman was still on the top of my car according to my mate and was hiding itself. The worst case scenario is that it follows us back to our university dorm and decides to latch itself onto us. So I told the guys that when we entered the car that I'm going to play a special prayer recording out loud using the auxiliary cord while also reading the prayers myself. I'm not a super religious person but I do believe in God and his protection. And if the plan didn't work out, then we would just drive around or hang at a McDonald's until 5am because that's the holy time for my religion and the woman would hopefully disappear. We eventually entered the car and I immediately started playing the prayers. My mate was driving this time as I wanted to focus fully on the prayer. And the moment that I started, the car suddenly got really heavy, as if there was an extra passenger there where there shouldn't have been. I continued with the recording along the journey and to my shame I actually fell asleep halfway. By the time I woke up it was near 2am and we reached the dorms already. According to my friend the prayers worked but took quite a bit of time as the woman only let go as we were entering the university area. I asked if he noticed anything strange and he said that all three of us actually fell asleep and he heard someone huffing and puffing but in a really angry way. He also noticed that several times the prayer recording just got interrupted as the volume went up and down as if someone was trying to purposely mess with it. Thankfully, the woman got off and we've not since went back to the neighborhood area. Being followed that one time was definitely enough for me. G'day mates, it's Bee Buster here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Be Scared Podcast. And please, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode too. Also, it would be much appreciated if you could share this new podcast with your friends and family and on social media too. Thanks again for listening guys, and I'll see you mates in the next one. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. 
It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.